Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. The interview you're about to hear is with Jacques Sace of Domaine du Jacques. His son, Jeremy Sace, was also on I'll Drink to That as a guest several years ago. And if you would like to hear that interview, Jeremy's episode is number 143. I'll Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Jacques Sace, the founder of Domaine Dujac in Maurice Saint Denis in Burgundy. Hello, sir. How are you? <laughs> very, very well. So you were born in 1941, and you were the only child in your family. Exactly. And your dad really liked cuisine. He liked food. He loved food, and uh, what he, I think his his father-in-law took him to Saulieu, where Alexandre Dumaine had already three star, became close friend of Alexandre Dumaine in Saulieu. And my dad visits settlers of Burgundy with Alexandre Dumaine every year to buy wine. Your dad ended up meeting a lot of the smaller domains that had started up in the 20s, 30s, 40s. People like Rousseau and Gouge. Yeah, at that, at that time, estate bottling, uh, they were less than 10 people. Uh, as you say, Gouge and Rousseau was major, Romain Conti too. There was an estate in Merceau called Hopito at that time, was very famous too, and Ramonet Prudent for sure. Your dad took you to fine restaurants and you went to Tour d'Argent when you were seven years old. First time, probably seven years old, yes. And he used to like to drink old wine and he had a gourmet club. He became a member of a gourmet club, and he will definitely choose the best wines, the best food he could. And what was your dad like as a person? He was great to understand the potential of people, and he will trust people, give them confidence, and help people to grow. I appreciated very much later when I was working with him, uh, when he was hiring executives, to see how he will hire people. I've been always impressed by that. Your dad had a share in Pousse d'Or in Volnay. As my father is a shareholder of Pousse d'Or, I visit Pousse d'Or from the beginning in '64. I become friends with Gérard Potel, who is a few years older than me, and and I feel this is great life. I already want to go away from Paris. For me, the country is where I want to be. I want to have a family. I want to to create something and sign it. Because you had worked for the family firm in marketing, and then you'd also worked in banking, but you decided you wanted to make something with your own hands. My dad said, whatever you do in life, banking two years. 
So I first worked in banking. And while I worked in banking, uh, I discovered at Pusdor the, the great job winemaking is. So you went and did a harvest with Gerard Potel at Pusdor. I did. Uh, my dad gave me two weeks vacation and called Gerard and said, you have to destroy him or inoculate the bug to him. And I was, I was exhausted every night, but I came back to Paris and said to my dad, that's what I want to do in life. What was Gerard Potel like at that time? I think we both enjoyed uh, good food and good wine. And uh, he, had, he had a sense of wine. He had a sense of, uh, of creation of wine uh, to feel what was wrong, what could be done to express the maximum possibility of the berries. So that's actually kind of unusual, because that's sort of still the negociant era. And what he was doing was changing his method to the conditions of the vintage, which seems kind of a given today. But maybe at that time, that was less the conversation. The conversation would have been maybe more about standardizing things to a certain flavor profile. And here was somebody looking to bring out vintage characteristics with different methods to the year. I think Gérard, like me, had the chance to be first generation. Uh, Gérard wanted to make the best wine possible. And uh, he had no recipe for that. He will do what he felt should be done. Gérard used a sorting table at that time? Yes, he was probably one of the first ones to use a sorting table in, uh, in Burgundy. Did he mention to you how he got that idea? No. And then he also used to use whole cluster for some of the Premier Crews, right? He was uh, using whole cluster for, uh, I would say, 70 to 90% of the crop. And those are things that later you would be associated with at Dujac. Use of a sorting table to sort and then whole cluster. I didn't want it to be creative at that time. I love the wine of Gérard, I love the wine of Rousseau, I love the wine of Bernard-Claire Dahu. And so, talking with them, I, I just followed the way they, were, they would work. Sorting, it's, it's clear, it's simple. You don't make a, a good dish in cooking with rotten mushrooms. You don't make a good wine with rotten berries. So you sort. And, and you sort a lot. And then um, I followed the path of those people. So you visited often to Charles Rousseau, to Claire Dow and Marcinet, to Gouge and Louis St. George. And what were some of those visits like? You have to remember the personality of those people. Charles Rousseau was exuberant, laughing, enjoying, enjoying life. And his wine was well like him. Very generous, very jovial. Henri Gouge was more austere, closed. And so the wines too. But uh, the, res the result of the long term was great. And I think uh, at that time, Gouge was known to have the, the selection of the smallest Pinot Noir, smallest berries in the, all the Côte de Nuit. And uh, that was a key to quality. That's actually something you followed up on later because you were looking for small berries as well, right? Right, yeah. You also were friends with Pierre Ramonet. Well, Pierre Ramonet knew me since I was seven, Maurice, and uh, I was very friend with Pierre, and Pierre wanted me to establish in Chassagne. He found an estate for sale, and he pushed me to buy it, and he, he, he said, if you... If you establish yourself in Chassagne, I will visit you every day. I will help you every day. But my heart was more to make red wine. And when uh, Gérard Potel called me saying, what you look for is for sale, I jumped on it. And that was what was called at the time Domaine Grier. Domaine Grier, yeah. It was perfect for a start. It was not too much money. I could afford it uh, selling my flat in Paris. But the property for sale had uh, one hectare of Clausagny, half hectare of Cloche, one hectare of Gevray Premier Cru Combotte, and 
two hectares of Morrison-Nee. I felt it was, I was damn lucky. So what was the village of Morrison-Nee like in the late 60s? Also, that's probably the estate more known there. It was Claude Tard and Claude Lambray. But uh, Claude Lambray was famous for the old lady that owned it and was a personage, we say. Uh, I don't think Clota was very well made at the time. And there were some other estates producing wine, but was selling, I would say, between uh, 80 to 100% in bulk to negotiations. Your first harvest was 68, which was challenging. Yeah, it was worse. But I, I said it will never be worse. And it, it has never been worse. I had more people sorting than people picking. I made it as well as possible, but I never put it on the market. I sold it to friends, only to friends. Remember, that's one of the rare vintage that was no Romani Conti produced because of the quality of the berries. And speaking of Domaine della Romani Conti, you were friends with Aubert. And when did that friendship develop? In 67, 68, we are both close friends of Becky and Bart, and they are established in uh, Saint-Romain, and we are both bachelors, and we are there often visiting uh, the Wasserman, staying for dinner, bringing some bottles sometimes, or, or sharing their bottles, and going with them uh, to test at Hubert de Monti, at Gérard Hotel, for sure, at Romani Conti, too, and, and other places. And I feel like that was almost like a change in terms of going to different cellars to taste, because it was kind of uncommon, actually, in that time for vintners to go to other domains. Yes, yes, exactly. And in the 60s, you make a living, but not much more. And uh, in the 60s, if uh, you have a kid bright enough to study, you push him to become a lawyer, to learn, to go to school, to do something else. The worst student you keep because it would be two arms to add in the work in the field. 20 years later, it's the reverse. The writers go to analogy school, to agriculture university, and will run the business. It's complete change. And it's sort of amazing when you got in. I mean, to buy what you did in the 60s looks, looking back to being a very astute purchase. I was at the right time, and I was lucky. More and more people in the, in the 90s discover the potential, the market. The market has changed a lot. In the 70s, uh, I was always sold out in uh, village wines, uh, maybe Premier Cru. Uh, you had to sell the Grand Cru. Uh, today, the demand is 10 times for the Grand Cru and maybe three times for the village. But people are ready to pay enormous prices to have the top wines. That's a big change. The demand is worldwide. Uh, and, uh, and incredible. So then 69 ended up being a vintage that was very good. It was very good. And it's where you, you see that if the work is well done in the vineyard and the grapes are high quality, you don't have much to do. Uh, put the grapes in the tank, it ferments, you press, put in cask, put in bottle, and wine receives a good you from everybody. What you decided to do was 100% whole cluster, and you made that decision because you were unhappy with the destemmers of the time. Well, I, I know DRC is not destemming, so I, I, don't, I don't go any further. I have cleaned the destemmer of Gérard Hotel several times, and I say, if I could avoid using a destemmer, I save the time of cleaning the distemmer. And as DRC does it with the result I, I think is great, I should not distemmer. 
Because your dad actually had tried a 38 Latash many times, and that was a particularly light color. And one of the concerns at the time was that whole cluster use would give you a lighter colored wine, but that didn't bother you. It didn't bother me. I think the first time I had that 38 Magnum of Latash with my dad was at, uh, at Tour d'Argent in probably 58, 59. He told Claude Terrail, how many Magnum of that you have left? And so I think Claude said 10 or 12. And my dad said, put them aside, we'll drink all of them. And we came back and uh, he, he came back without me sometimes, but, but I enjoy many of those. And so you knew, even if a wine was lighter in color, that the aroma and the... Well, I knew my pleasure. I think in winemaking, it's like in cooking. You have to do it for you first, to enjoy it. So that Dash 38, pink, dark pink, uh, was such, so much complexity, length. I was incredible. It was, was an enormous pleasure. And so I, I never thought of that I should care for, for color. I should care to have the same complexity and length. And you've mentioned to me before that one of the things that's nice about whole cluster is that you get whole berries. Yeah. I never considered that the stem could bring something. The reason to avoid the stemming was to have wool berries. Because in the wool, the wool berry, you have some intracellular fermentation under the skin, and that brings complexity. And that's the only reason why I didn't destem. If I could have woolberries with destemming, I would have destem. And actually, it also slowed down the fermentation, it right? It does, yeah. And so there's an effect of almost having like a couple of days cold maceration in the beginning because right. it doesn't start right away. I have a story about that. Is, uh, in 69, uh, my winery is just built, no door, it's too cold. Fermentation doesn't start. Maceration lasts three, four days before fermentation starts. And I, my idea is I would never use yeast. I want only wild yeast. And nearly 10 years later, in, I think it's summer of 78, I'm in uh, Napa Valley discussing with uh, Andre Telichev. And we spend uh, more or less uh, all morning discussing winemaking. And at the end of it, he said, I'm, I've never worked with Pinot Noir, but if I was, I would be very tempted to do a cold maceration before because it will bring some complexity in the wine I will appreciate. So I listened to that and I go back to Burgundy and I, I look at my uh, notes of harvest, uh, where I discovered in 69, I had cold maceration without trying to have the cold maceration. So 78 is the first year I do on purpose cold maceration in some of the wines to see the result. And I, I enjoyed it. So uh, in the future years, I always had a natural start of fermentation with no fermentation starting before three, four days, very often. Looking back over your span of wines, there have been many successes, but one of your most famous wines is the 78 Claude de la Roche. It was famous, yes. And so you felt there was some success there with that yes. cold maceration. Sure. Who was it that taught you to be a good taster? Was that your dad, or did you learn from certain people about tasting? Well, Jules Chauvet taught me a lot about tasting. He was a fantastic tester. But it's funny because uh, you have people tasting that you see there. They enjoy tasting. The pleasure. Jules Chauvet was very discreet, very close. He was making analysis of the wine in tasting. Did he bring a lot of rigor to it? Did he do things that were a little unusual? Yes. He was refusing to test in cellars. Uh, you had to test outside to avoid the the smell of the cellar. He will come always with his glasses, his water to wash the glasses after, and the napkin to dry the glasses after. 
did Jules' thoughts on native yeast have an effect on your choice to use native yeast? No, I think Potella is one that uh, pushed me to native yeast. And so you used to use a pneumatic press, right? Uh, I was one of the first ones to use pneumatic press. Uh, I saw the result at, uh, I don't know who they did before me, but I looked at the result. I looked at the press wine, and it was, for me, it was a big plus. One of the other things that happened when you took over what you called Domaine du Jacques is that you needed some cooperage, right? Because there wasn't a much good cooperage in the cellar at that time. Exactly. Because I think the previous domain used to sell off to the Negos. It will sell into Negos, yes, uh, all the wine, except maybe two or three barrels to ask to bottle for his friend and for himself. And so for that reason, you started with 100% New Oak, right? In 69, yes. What was your experience of that? Happy. I was happy with the result. I know that uh, Romani Conti was 100% New Oak too. And so I, I went on that. But after, after several years, I decided that to be sure of uh, the length of time for drying the oak, the best would be to buy the oak and store it in my garden and bring it to the, to the cooper after. And I did. I started to do that in 77. Now we have a space at, at the cooper from whom we have the barrels. and. We have the wood stores there. Jules Chauvet came and talked to you about how to get the leaves to settle in the barrels. Yeah. He was always having the cask out in the courtyard to be exposed to frost and cold weather because the leaves will settle better. And he suggested to me to do the same thing. So I tried in 76 successfully. Uh, I tried in 77 not successfully. <laughs> and that was the end of it. You know, 77 is my birth year. So I had a close on Denis from 77 for my 40th birthday. It was, it was good wine. Still alive. Yeah. I know it's not the most lauded vintage. But no. It was low alcohol, actually, vintage, right? Yeah. Low everything. <laughs> you used to like to do a little chapelization to extend the fermentation sometimes, right? Yeah. There was a need. You, know, you see, one thing is difficult is to compare what we make today. And in the past, uh, the grapes today are riper, much riper. The yield are, are more maîtrisé. I don't know if you say maîtrisé, but we have control of yield. Uh, we had not the same control of yield at that time. So we don't work the same. But uh, chapelization was uh, clear. Everybody will chapelize. And you used to do more punch downs back then for the same reason that the grapes were less ripe back then. Maybe, yeah. Why did you do more punch downs back then? I thought that if you do pump over, you bring oxygen to the yeast and you create uh, faster fermentation. And uh, I thought uh, that we needed to extract more and have a slower fermentation. So I wanted to avoid pump over and replace it by pigeage. Had you talked to Hubert de Monti about that at all? We didn't talk that specially. With Hubert, we'll taste wine, we'll drink wine too. And, but Hubert was not moderate, and he pushed it much further than I did. Because he used to do a lot of punch-downs. Oh, he, he, well, the maximum I did was two to three punch-downs a day for four or five days. Hubert uh, went up to, uh, I don't know. You didn't bottle very late. You kind of bottled a little earlier to preserving that fruit of the vineyard. Well, that was one of the experiments. First, I think I still have in the cellar a uh, 76 bottle, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. I did such experiments, and, uh, and I found that uh, I enjoyed more the wine bottle earlier than late. Gérard Potel was concerned by the delay between malolactic and bottling. His view was a 9 to 12 months after malolactic. And I think it's not a bad idea. And then you used the bottle unfiltered? 
Oui. Unfiltered. You would put that on the label, which All was the label, yeah. unusual for the era. Unusual. You have many tools. And I think uh, the difficulty is to do nothing. Uh, if you have the chance to have grapes growing on the right place, you have the chance to grow Clos-Vougeot, Clos-Laroche, Richebourg. You have to follow the vineyard, do a good job in the vineyard, but then, like a good doctor would never give you pills if you're not sick, a good winemaker should do nothing. Put the grapes in the fermenter, press, put in a cask, bottle, and sell. And I think too many people want to uh, push their personality, their ego, too far. I've been trying to make Clos La Roche or Echezo. I never tried to make Jacques Cesse wine. After you did 69 and 70, you got a call from Aubert about Colonel Wildman. Yeah. He was the founder of the importing company. And Aubert knew that he was looking for more wine. He needed more wine. And so Aubert called me and said, are you ready to receive a Colonel Wildman? Are you ready to sell him wine? I said, yeah, why not? And so the colonel came and tasted my wines, and uh, I didn't say a word until uh, he went out of the cellar and said, okay, I like your wine, I'll take all of it. And wanted to buy all, all what I had. So I was great for my cash <laughs> and helped me to survive. But you kept some 69 for a long time. I did, yeah. And that came in handy later when you needed to get some funds. Uh, I was short of cash uh, to face uh, the enlargement of the Domaine du Jacques, and I sold. So originally you started with the Clos de la Roche, the Combo Gevray, and the Clos Saint-Denis, and then Moray Village. Yes. In uh, May 69, I buy Echezo, and I buy Bonnemar. And then I buy some more Clos de la Roche in 70. And well, then, big step was in '77 when I buy my neighbor. Uh, it was uh, nearly four hectare, and uh, I wanted to buy uh, one hectare. I could not imagine buying more, but the bank told me you have to buy everything. You are young; it's it's working really well. We will follow you. I say, well, I need a lot of money if you want to follow me. And but they did. And then I, I lived to a very difficult uh, period because for several years I was uh, working 11 and a half hectare, but I was selling only seven uh, for old vine. And uh, so I was, I was very difficult. If a check will arrive, I will take my car and go drop it at the bank. And at that time you had two children as well. My second son is born in 77, Alec. You had met your wife, Roz, in 71. Exactly. One of my close friends was coming for harvest and called me and said, I have two friends just arriving from California. May I bring them with me? And I, I said, are they pretty? And he said, yes. I said, what are you asking? Bring them. And that's the way we met. She went back to Paris. I was often going to Paris to visit my parents. And I called my friend and said, are they still in France? He said, yes, uh, give me a phone number. And, and that was the beginning of, of the romance. She was American. She was American. She's still American. She's French too, but she's American. And it was actually your wife, Roz, who received Robert Parker when he first came to the Domaine du Jac. Yes. Very often, we don't give enough credit to the wife of a winemaker. And it was a big plus to have an English-speaking wife in that business at that time, because the visitors from, uh, from America, they had no many estates where there was people speaking English. And Rose, she adjusted very well. She was taking people in the cellar, giving tastings like me. And we, we worked together. The first bottle 
we sold the, the labeling was done by Rose and I. So you had a few advantages. One, you already had an importer. You got one early on. Yeah. Two, your wife spoke English. Mm-hmm. Three, you had an experience in banking. And so when you had to talk to the banks, that helped. Yeah. Four, your dad was a great salesman for your wines mm-hmm. because he was both a gourmet and used to go to the restaurants and ask them if they'd tried your wines. But then he also had friends in the gourmet club who owned famous chateau. And mm-hmm. Fifth, it seems that Robert Parker liked the wines. True. True, true. Yeah. But before that, uh, I think uh, we traveled, and I, I think uh, my view of the business was you don't put all your eggs in the same basket. So uh, I think I was one of the earliest small estate to export to Japan, for example. You went to the University of Dijon to study analogy. Yeah. Following uh, the experiment I had with... Uh, Nielsen working with me in 75, 76. I thought it was exciting to experiment. I like the idea of experimenting. So I go to Dijon University and ask to have trainees that will write a paper of end of studies on the research we'll do together. And they say, but you don't have a diploma, so we don't give students to people that don't have a diploma. So I go back in 79 to uh, studying next to uh, Christophe Roumier, for example. <laughs> and I got my diploma in uh, 1980, and, uh, and after that, I started to have trainees every year uh, and experimenting. Uh, we did several times uh, distilling, non-distilling, for example. We did many experiments. Lee got that kind of started when he came and knocked on your door in 75. Well, Lee, Lee was... Uh, very concerned with uh, vineyard management. I'm more, I've been always someone from the winery, not from the vineyard. Uh, I told him from the beginning, he said, Lee, if you want to learn something from my workers, you have to become friends with my workers. So I don't want to create a close relationship between you and me because you have to have the confidence of them. So he, he went to work in the field with them it was very, very courageous in the cold weather of uh, January, February, winter. And I remember seeing him coming back frozen. Uh, Becky, his wife at that time, would put him in front of the fireplace uh, to warm up. It was very courageous. But uh, we discovered quickly that we had love for good wine. And we became very good friends. And... Uh, I took him to celebrate his birthday. I think it was his 20th birthday or 20-something birthday at Paul Bocuse. I remember, I, see, I still see the picture of him blowing the candles. One of the things that's really kind of been remarkable in your career is the development that you've had with American vigneron and vintners. You were close with Paul Draper and Dick Graff and Josh Jensen and Steve Dorner. And Ted Lemon as well, right? Yeah. Who came first in that progression? Was it Josh Jensen that you met first of that group? Yeah. I met Josh at Barton Biggie in Selma. And Josh is on his way to India with a Volkswagen minibus. And we found the same interest for wine. And when he comes back from India, I remember very well, he goes to Paris, buy two bottles of Chateau Iquem and two or three pounds of foie gras, and arrive in Saint-Romain at Becky, and he wants to share that with friends. So I, I'm there, Aubert is there, and we share that. And he comes to my place at Harvest to help I remember this minibus next to my winery. And he, at that time, he said, I want to make Pinot Noir one day. And when uh, I go to California with my future wife, uh, I visit him, and he organized a, a lunch with uh, Dick Graff. Dick brings uh, 
bottle of 69 from Shalom, and uh, and uh, I have a bottle of 69 too, and so we drink and discuss wine, discuss wine, and uh, and become friends. And at that time, uh, Josh was writing a page of the Chronicle on restaurants. He had to visit uh, to restaurants a day to be able to write his page on uh, on Sunday. So he had the need to do a lot of jogging to burn calories. But he had the decision. And I thought he was completely crazy because he spent, uh, say, one year or more on the geological map to find the right place to grow Pinot Noir. His idea was limestone was major. He found a place, convinced people to sell him uh, land there. And I remember later visiting him he has a big uh, camping car where he has a baby and a wife, and he's planting vineyards there. I, I thought it was completely, completely crazy, but successful. And Josh introduced me to Paul, Paul Draper. And we did uh, go together at, uh, there was some meetings, uh, analogical meetings, you used to have a group together with Dick Graff, Paul Draper, Josh Jensen, Ken Wright, and yourself, and you used to communicate about winemaking technique. Yeah. We discovered that my favorite uh, wines from California were made by people using wild yeast. There was Paul Draper, Josh, Dick Graff, was a, a few people using wild yeast. And so uh, that's pushed me in, in recognizing that I had started on the right direction. Ted Lemon came to visit you in 1980, right? Ted starts with Harvest 1980. We do experiment with Crasson uh, to try extract extract uh, Crasson breaks uh, cells, and so extraction is better, but it's unstable. It didn't work. And he worked with me for several months, and uh, from the beginning I knew that he was uh, someone uh, at a great future. I was impressed. He, he was so responsible, passionate, and, uh, and precise. You used to call him Uncle Ted because he was mature. He was mature, yes. He was older than uh, his age. And when Guy Rouleau died, you recommended Ted to the Rouleau family. I did. And he came back in January 83. And... Uh, was there for, I think, two years and a half, three years. In the 70s, you were asked by a, a publication to do wine columns. Mm -hmm. Christian Mio asked me to do that, and uh, I was writing every three months a, a column of saying my favorite bottle of the month, uh, my discovery of the month, uh, my suggestions. I did that for one year and a half, something like that. One of the best. Uh, side of it was uh, because of that I met uh, Gérard Chave uh, I met Clap and they were, they were unknown you could buy Clap and Chave for nothing at that time but the one were enormous pleasure I was friend with a restaurant owner in uh, Pont d'Isère, Michel Chabran and he was the one that suggested me to go visit those people uh, in another side, I went to Côte Chalonnaise, where uh, I uh, met people like Jackson in Ruyi uh, and Madame Nieps, where who was a great, great niece of the inventor of photography. She was a, a bit eccentric, and uh, she had a donkey, and the donkey will come and uh, have breakfast with her in the kitchen. But she was making a Interesting and good Ruy too. Aubert told me one time that you guys went for a tasting and you knocked on the door and no one answered. And so you just sort of looked in and there was a donkey in the kitchen just hanging out. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, you know, back to that Rhone visits, I feel like you made a number of connections in the Northern Rhone, like uh, with Gripat. Mm -hmm. Later, Gripat later, yeah. And with Greyo. Grayo I knew before he started. You see, Grayo is working in Paris, 
and he wants to become a winemaker one day. And he came to do some suturage or bottling or work with me from time to time. And uh, in 1st of September, 85, uh, he called me and there is, he said, uh, someone died in Crozet Hermitage and his widow is looking for sale, the winery, the vineyard. Uh, what do you think? I said, well, we have to see the vineyard, see the winery. I asked our common friend, uh, Patrick Bees from Savigny, to go down. Patrick come back and say, the vineyard look good, and they are in good shape, crop look nice. The winery is filthy, but could be clean and make wine. And so Grayo in 85 is renting the winery, buying all the crop from the lady, and I send Jean-Pierre Desmet, who was supposed to be at Harvest with me, to help him, plus two trainees from Australia, and they helped him to make his first crop in 85. And that was the beginning of a tremendous success. He had a sense of uh, winemaking. And so we, we still drink bottles and bicycle together often. You had a number of people from Australia come to visit you, like Stephen Henschke, James Halliday, and Farr. First visitors from Australia is in 83. I remember very well, I see the, still the starting table on the bottom of the Bonmar because I took my starting table in the field. And at the starting table, I have James Saturday and Gary Farr. And James, the energy is enormous. James at that time is uh, writing, making wine, buying wine, a lawyer. And he's the first one up to reach a winery to be ready for the first pigeage. He's receiving uh, bottles to test uh, before lunch. He's going out for dinner to famous restaurant because they still have some bottles. And he's exhausting everybody. Gary Farr is, uh, I would say, 15 years younger than, than him. And I remember at the end of the winemaking, James saying, Gary, I found that at Point in Vienne, they have Tasha 62. I want to go drink that bottle. And Gary, Gary says, James, I'm exhausted. No. And James will go down, drive to there, have dinner, drink the bottle, and be back next morning, first one in the winery. Incredible. And when Stephen Henschke came, he didn't tell you he was a famous winemaker. He just uh, showed no, up. No, exactly. I discovered later that he was uh, famous, and his family was famous for a long time. Uh, he was very discreet, and so was his wife, Prue. But Prue was uh, so knowledgeable about vineyard management and clonal selection and grape selection, and it was a big pleasure to have them. Because those are topics that later you took up yourself in a few different ways. So you did higher trellising than some people, and then you looked really carefully at what you wanted to plant in Eschazo and Beaumar when you replanted in the late 60s, right? Mm-hmm. I did, yeah. I had people I was trusting. The man who could be considered to be the father of clothes in Burgundy is Raymond Bernard. And uh, I trusted him, and I followed his recommendation. And there was a period where I was reprinting mostly in clones. Then uh, we changed and went back to massal selection. Jamie was very much part of that. So you mentioned Patrick Bees, and for a long time you had a sort of a tasting group with Rumier, Bees, Lafon. Mm-hmm. And what was Patrick like as a person? Oh, Patrick was uh, was a Good, good friends. And friendship was very major. We will do a lot of biking together, visit good restaurants together, and test. He will visit me. I will, and he will call me to say what you feel about that wine and those wines. And he wanted 
to have an opinion of the others and say, and always say the truth. What do you feel? This is wrong, no? You, there's something wrong in that wine. Or this is great, that's my best wine. Well, we'll discuss very openly, very, very friendly. What was your memory of those vintages in the 70s and into the 80s? I know that the 70s vintage was sometimes difficult. Very difficult, yes. You have to keep in mind that uh, for us, the last time we started harvest in October was 87. Uh, before was harvest was in October, three years out of four, more or less. And grapes were often not ripe enough. I've been sometimes successful, like difficult vintage, like 75. I was very pleased with the result. I probably did a good sorting, created a good balance, and so they were not great wines, but they sold very well because they were, they were okay to drink early. 78, bad weather till the uh, end of August, but uh, fantastic weather in uh, September and October. It saves the crop. And the fact, you have to imagine crop 78 is half or less than half than 77. Today, we have a completely different uh, raw material to deal with. Enormous changes. There's, there's several, several sides of it in the changes. I would say the global warming. I think the work done in the vineyards, the work done in the vineyard has never been so good. So well done, and, uh, and that's the key. With the best fruit, you make the best wine. One of the ways that you changed up your method a little bit, given the year, was that you destemmed in 91. I destemmed 91 because uh, there was a hailstorm, if I remember well, 23rd of August. And to save what was left, I decided to buy Swissers, hire people, and for three weeks, they took the damaged berries down. And so at harvest, I had less berries, and because I had less berries, I thought it would be a very imbalance with the quantity of the stem, and that's why I had the stem a lot of uh, 91. I changed all my, I would say, my habits of wine making to adjust to, to face the problem. Not trying to do the same thing. You do something different with the raw material you have. How do you find those 91s now? Because that was one of the first times that you had done something like that in terms of a lot of destemming. I, I like the wine today. Uh, and is it because I did that? I don't know. But the, the result is, is good. I'm, I'm happy with the result today. And when did you meet Christophe Morel? I met Christophe Moir when he's coming back from California. Christophe Moir worked for Josh Jensen at Carrera, I would say one or two years. And Josh called me and said, that guy is great. You should hire him. And I could not afford a vineyard manager. And so I, I helped him to find a job uh, in uh, Ruyi. But a few years later, when I was making enough money to have a vineyard manager, I called him and he, he came to work with me. Eventually, you stopped the use of herbicides and then moved to organics with Christophe. Exactly. And what was that conversion process like? I think Christophe sold me the idea very well, and I followed him. I, as I said before, what I learned with my dad when you have someone you feel is really good, you have to trust him and give him confidence. The day Christophe was there, I did never, never said a word about what we should do in the vineyard. So Christophe, you do what you feel should be done. And if it's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and if you want to go play on, on Thursday and Friday, you do. What I'm looking for is the best fruits the day of harvest. One of the things Jeremy said is that Christoph made young vines act like old vines by bringing down yields. Yes, I will agree. You had replanting in Bonmar and Echezo, so he kind of 
Well, I started replanting. Uh, I started replanting earlier than that because I decided that I didn't want to have only old vines and to have to replant when my sons will be on the age of working. And so I had to go ahead and start replanting. And I did start in 78, 79. I replanted quite a lot because I wanted to avoid that situation the day my son will come on the market for work. So you didn't want a situation where as the kids came, they were going to have to replant themselves. I wanted to have my hands free to help them start maybe another business because I never pushed them to join me in the company. Uh, I had a chance in my youth to have a dad that helped me to go in the direction I wanted to go. And I was the only son. We were together like two fingers, and he was very happy to have his son working with him. But he helped me to go in another direction. And I said, I have to do the same thing. So when Jeremy went to Oxford to become a marine biologist, I said, okay, I will help you. When Alec wanted to become a writer and a teacher, I said, okay, I will help you. But they both came back and, and now are running uh, Dujac. And I'm very happy. Christophe Moran, unfortunately, died in a motorcycle accident in 2001. Right. So then his assistant, Lillian Robon, came to work for you in that position. And he was a young man. Yeah, yeah. The challenge for him was to convince everybody. The challenge for me was to say, I trust him and I will help him. So I, I, I saw my workers and I said, I want you to help him. It's hard for you to admit that he's maybe younger than you. He has not that many experience, but we need him. And I'm, I'm sure it's going to work. So you have to help him. And it worked. He's a very good teacher too. We often have a, a young uh, kid uh, in his late studies who come part-time with us. And Lillian is really a good, good teacher. And one of the things that's so remarked upon by people who have worked at Dujac is the kind of the spirit of the harvest, welcoming people from around the world, younger people, which is, uh, again, somewhat unique for Burgundy in general, but also especially for the era that you were doing it, 70s and 80s. Well, I think young people uh, will bring a lot of questions. Now, if you don't want to look stupid, you have to find answers. And I think it's, it's important to have always questions and discuss it and uh, help those people to, to discover one of the key of our business, which is passion. And I, I said several times, I say, Abdujak, don't come to learn technology, uh, winemaking, all that you have in books or you have it everywhere. What I can teach you is passion. And I, I think the key to have a great life is to, to be passionate. And wine is, a, is an opportunity to do your work with passion. I say sometimes we, we do five jobs. One, grape growing, wine making, second. Third, wine aging in cask and racking, not racking. And uh, fourth is bottling. And five is sale. And I knew people that were good at two or three, but not two, the five. Uh, I had one friend, I remember saying his vineyard was perfect. His wine and cask were marvelous, but I never had a really good wine in bottle. So it's a complete job. You started uh, Druid Wines, which was a negotiant for whites. Yeah. There was. Uh, a demand uh, for it. 
I thought would be interesting to put my feet in uh, white wine. And I started it, and it was selling rather well. But I discovered that really white wine making was a nightmare for me. I was happy and relaxed with red. I was stressed, anxious with white. And the first thing I said to Jeremy when he came, say, white are yours, and you do it. But uh, at the same time, Jeremy uh, has, has done a lot of work for the Mende de Trienne, because I started in 1990, the Mende de Trienne, and it was tough. I thought I could, could succeed there, and I, I, was, I was wrong. I was, uh, I was pretentious. Uh, it took uh, much longer, and Jeremy is really the one that uh, helped a lot to succeed with Trienne. So that's in Provence. It's in Provence. What happened in, in 1990 with Aubert de Villene and another friend, we feel the price of vineyard in Burgundy is so high, we should look for another area to expand. And that's the way we start Trienne. We thought uh, we could easily make better wine that was made in the area. And we could easily sell the wine because of the name of Aubert de Villene and Jacques And all that was pretension and arrogant. Making wine there was something else. Working with Syrah, Cabernet, and other grape varietal was different. I thought I knew make wine. I had an idea to make Pinot Noir. And then I realized that the customers of Aubert and Domaine du Jacques were not looking for wine at 10 or $15. They were looking at expensive, fantastic wines, and we had to create completely different customers. And that's why when Jeremy reached Trien, he has the talent to create rosé with our general managers there, the two together, they were able to, to do what I don't know to do, blend different wines to make a terrific rosé. And so Jeremy uh, created the success of Trienne. Jeremy really came back in the 2000s. Yes. I had the chance to, uh, to discover that he loved wine, and not only loved wine, but his palate was uh, right. When did you first meet Diana, his wife? 98. Christmas, 98. And invited her to join us for skiing at Christmas, 98. I went with Jeremy to pick her up in the airport of Lyon. She was laughing. She has a great sense of humor. She was a happy nature. And two days after, she was trying to follow Jeremy. She hurt her knee and uh, went to the doctor. And I remember going to the doctor. She had a plaster. Took her back to the chalet we were renting. So then she was with you for a while then, right? She was for (laughs) a while. And she was a trained enologist. She was uh, studying at Davis. I think she graduated in 2001 and uh, packed all her stuff and moved to Nuit Saint-Georges to live with Jeremy. She wanted to do uh, one harvest in Bordeaux that she did in uh, 2001, uh, harvest 2002 at Le Fleve, and her first harvest at Dujac was 2003. 03, 04, 05, gradually more of the decisions start to move to Jeremy and Diana and Alec, your other son. Yes, and... and, and Often, uh, I've been asked, what was your last vintage? Or Jeremy was asked, what's your first vintage? He's not able to answer, and I'm not able to answer, because we've been uh, in the winery together, and probably the decision that become more and more on Jeremy, Diana, or Alex's side. Uh, but it was not clear. 
and even today. And I, I think last year or year before, I said to Jeremy, well, I think I should leave you in peace in the winery and go back with my friends uh, during harvest. And he said, no, no way, we need you. You have to be the winery and uh, I'm expecting you to be there. I was pleased, I was honored, and uh, I did what uh, he asked me to do. But uh, I don't want to interfere. I think they are doing really well uh, things uh, in the vineyard and in every way. If I can be any, any help, I am. But they ask for it. But the one point for me very important, uh, they follow me on the fact that decision in the winery is not made with analysis, with temperature, with density. It's made with testing. I think it's a key in winemaking. If you don't test, you're missing the possibility to make a better wine. Jeremy and Diana and Alec made a few decisions, changing the pick date a little bit, changing the length of mallow, changing the percentage of whole cluster sometimes, depending on the vintage, a little less new oak. So I guess the question to you would be, you know, how do you feel about those decisions and maybe others that they've made over time? I think one of the first decisions is, is in France is by Christophe Houmier. Uh, Christophe Houmier is having always late malolactic. And I love this result. Christophe is pretty uh, someone I trust the more in uh, winemaking. And before the arrival of Jeremy and Diana and Alec, if I had a problem, I will say, Christoph, come test my wines and tell me what you feel. Uh, so in 99, we, with Jeremy, already there, we have same wine in a cold cellar and in a normal cellar. And one part does a late malolactic. We like the result. And since 99, we try to have always late malolactic. I think... I think we never made as good wine as we make today. I think by the quality of selection of the lees, we can leave the wine on the lees nearly all their life. And I think uh, it's something new to me uh, that the lees are such a plus for the wine. And so I'm very pleased with the result. And uh, some people ask me if I'm, I prefer to drink old wine I made. Uh, no, I much prefer to drink the wines made with the young generation. I love to drink 06, 06 right now. There's some 06 I really enjoy. Uh, so we have the global warming, which is a big plus. We have the work done in the vineyard, never been as well done. We have the work done in the winery, very well done. So I'm a very happy man. So there's a couple of things in there. And one is that with a colder cellar, you were getting longer mallows. And that's because if you warm the cellar, the mallow goes faster. Yeah. And so you then built a cooler cellar. Mm -hmm. And then moving since 99, the mallows have been delayed. Mm -hmm. They start later. And then the second part of that was about lees. And it sounds like you're saying that the leaves are cleaner, uh, so you can leave the wine on it longer because the sorting is better? When the sorting is better, then before putting in cask, uh, the sorting of the leaves, I would say, takes a boob out, look at the leaves, and uh, if, if they like the leaves, we'll move the leaves up before we put in cask so we could have some leaves in, in the cask. So there's less racking now than there may have been? There is no racking. Often, some wine have a one racking. Sometimes there's no racking before bottling. And so that would have been a change since what you were doing yes. in the 70s. Yeah. My trend in the, in the 70s and the 80s would have been to rack after malolactic. And now we don't rack after malolactic. And it seems that the colors are a little darker now. Riper fruit. I think riper fruit, and I, I think I feel that one of the 
toughest thing today, and was always, but is the date of harvest. Uh, we discuss it, we walk in the vineyard, we eat berries, we crush seed, uh, we discuss it, and I think it's one of the key. Uh, sometimes you don't know why. Why this cuvee is better than the others? Probably because it was picked at the right time. The others may be a bit too early or too late. What are the things, looking back, do you think have made you the happiest? Definitely the family. Family ready to push the virtues you enjoy, like uh, generosity, like uh, brightness, friendship. It's, it's great. And my successful side of my life is there. I always said uh, in my head that what I want more in life is to have my wife, my parents, and my kids proud of me. And that was the way I have run my life. Jacques says, found a place to raise a family in Burgundy. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Jacques says, the founder of Domaine du Jacques in Marie Saint Denis in Burgundy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. While researching questions for this interview, I read the writing of Clive Coates and of Jasper Morris. And if you would like to know more about Jacques Sace and Domaine Dujac, I would recommend both of those people's books to you. I also owe a great deal of thanks to the Wasserman family and to Jeremy Sace for making this interview possible. Thank you. And we, some of them said close friend, uh, like Michel Magnin, you made Domaine Magnin, Michel Magnin. Uh, Michel, uh, I remember very well, at, at one point I said, well, I've never done any, any help to work for the village, not to be mayor, but assistant mayor or whatever. And Michel said, you're much more important selling Maurice and me all around the world than working for the village. And he pushed me, said, no, don't, don't do that. And I think he was, he was you know, we're right.